Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Annalisa, and I'm the host of this Art of Italy lecture on ancient and medieval Italy. Um, I'm going to give it a few more minutes, just people are still joining, but I just wanted to at least say hello now that it is officially 10 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. I live in the Seattle, Washington area, hence the time. So thank you for being here, especially if you do not live in that time zone. Uh, just a quick reminder that I am recording this because I want to put it up on YouTube because I had some people message me saying that due to a time difference or work obligations, etc, they wouldn't be able to attend, um, but they still wanted to watch the information. So I will be screen sharing so you can turn your cameras off um, if you'd like because no one's going to see that they're going to be seeing the actual presentation that I've put together, but I just wanted to let you know besides the little zoom notification that um, pops up when you join saying that it's being recorded. But uh, yeah, just a few more minutes to let people join and then uh, we will jump into the art of Italy. All right, so people still pop in, um, but I'm going to go ahead and get started because we're going to have a lot of information to get through today. Um, so, as I said, my name is Annalisa Sovereigns Reed. I have a master's in education. That's me. Uh, and then the logo for my digital art history project, which I call Accessible Art History. My goal is to make a space for anyone that's curious about art history. I find that sometimes academia can be really restrictive. And I didn't want that. I love art history so much. I honestly just wanted to talk about it with anybody that would listen. And I always joke that my parents uh, kind of got sick of me talking about it with them. So I started this and it's just kind of become this big thing. And I've met an amazing history community online and I'm 
trying new ways, including this lecture, to reach out to people who are interested in the subject, but maybe don't have that academic background. And I want to make that an accessible option for them, which is why I am bringing up this free lecture. Um, I did my studies at the University of Washington, and I have an honors BA in art history, where I focus on medieval art, early Christian art. And I also have a master's in secondary education from Grand Canyon University. And um, I actually am an art educator as well. I will be teaching a nine-week course this coming quarter on art history. So this is kind of a sneak-free preview of that course that I'm going to be teaching. So why did I choose to talk about Italy? Honestly, it's a little selfish because Italy has always had my heart. I've been blessed enough to have visited there a few times. And it's what I did my undergraduate studies on. I love the culture. I love how we have such a strong historical record for it that we can really see how humans have always had this desire to create and make the more world more beautiful to explain their culture through art, through writing, through history. And I wanna share that passion that I have for Italian artistic culture with the rest of the world. But I am a true art history nerd at heart. I love many other different cultures, but Italy definitely is my number one. So we are going to kick our ancient world off actually with the Etruscans. I'm not going to start with ancient Rome. Uh, that's a really typical place where people start, but I love the Etruscans. And I think that we can see a lot of foundational elements of Rome, Italy, the Mediterranean culture within the Etruscans. Um, I love the way that Gardner's art history textbook puts it. He says, quote, the Etruscans, as everyone knows, were the people who occupied the middle of Italy in the early Roman days and whom the Romans in their usually neighborly fashion wiped them all out. So who were the Etruscans? Um, in case you don't know, you've never heard of them or kind of have a vague inkling of who they were. They're an Italic people that predated the Romans and th there was some overlap later, but we definitely see the Etruscan culture happening first before the Roman group gets together. But to be honest, we aren't exactly sure, quote, who they are. There's a few theories that have come around. There's not a lot of um, physical material evidence, as in bones, for us to be able to DNA test um, because they did cremate their uh, dead. So we don't have that solid carbon dating, uh, DNA testing. There are two different like theories where we have they are indigenous people of Italy that kind of came together as a culture. But there's also a theory that they were immigrants from Greek and uh, Greece and Asia Minor. Honestly, I think it lies somewhere in the middle. We see elements of a unique Italic culture, but we also see a heavy influence from Hellenistic culture. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's just a melting pot, much like the Mediterranean is, where we had a lot of movement between cultures um, and kind of that intermingling. So we wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. So the first work of this lecture and of the Etruscan section is going to be the Tomb of the Triclinium. If you are ever lucky enough to go to Rome, I highly take, suggest taking a day trip over to the Etruscan tombs in Chevetri and Tarquinia. They are really fun. You can actually go inside a lot of them, which is uh, creepy and cool. But this is one of the most famous. The uh, Tomb of the Triclinium dates from around 470 BCE. And a triclinium is a three-couch dining room that we see in many Mediterranean cultures, including in Italy and Greece. And this was kind of the center of the household. It's where the people would gather. They would relax on these couches while they ate. They would not sit at like a dining table. They'd actually recline, which in my modern Western brain is a little crazy, but whatever works. And we see that this is a celebration. Death was not necessarily sad in the Etruscan culture. 
in all of the tombs that we've been lucky enough to uncover in these areas, we see a party. There is dancing, there are musicians, there's acrobatics, there's these abundant feasts. Things were happy for these Etruscans. They were excited to move on to the afterlife. This was a central part of their beliefs. And it's honestly a breath of fresh air. They're not necessarily mourning. And we know, of course, they're dead. Like that's something that goes across humanity is, you know, it's sad when someone dies, but they saw it as an opportunity to celebrate this person's life, come together as either a family, a social group, or even both, and just have a good party to celebrate that moment. And by painting this on their tombs, and where they would place the cremated remains of their loved ones, it ensured that the party went on for eternity. I mean, look, this is thousands of years later, and we still have a party going on. Kind of bouncing off that is the sarcophagus of the spouses. Now, this is one of my personal favorite Etruscan works. I just find it very comforting, very intimate. Um, so this is from 530 to 510 BCE. And we see a pair of people, they are married, reclining on one of those triclinium couches. And they are, um, they would have been buried together, we think. Their remains have unfortunately disappeared, but uh, we would assume that they were buried together as husband and wife. This is heavily stylized. And what I mean by stylized, I'm going to use that word throughout this lecture, is it follows a specific canon of depiction. So we see the woman with her braids, her archaic smile, that kind of half smile, but not quite that full grin, the elongated almond-shaped eyes. We have the man who has similar facial features, but he has a very heavy beard and another elaborate hairdo. Now, this is one of two that survives. This one is in Rome. The other one is in the Louvre of Paris, which tells us that there was a thriving artistic culture. There was this person, a craftsman, who was specializing in these tomb of the sarcophagus of spouses, and he made them for people, and it wasn't necessarily an individualist trait. Now, this next piece of Etruscan artwork is a little terrifying. This is the Chimera of Arezzo. It was found in Arezzo, given its name. It's around the same time as the tomb of the Triclinium, around 400 BCE, and it's made of bronze. Now, it is spectacular that we actually have this Chimera surviving. In ancient times, bronze was very valuable. It was time consuming to make. So they would take pieces already made and melt it down. So the fact that we have this thousands of years later is a big win for us art historians. Now, Chimera, this is kind of a terrifying animal. Look at it. We've got a lion, but instead of a tail, it has a snake. And by some weird scientific amalgamation, we have a goat sticking out of the side of it. And if that wasn't scary enough, the, um, Chimera also breathed fire. So in case you weren't terrified of these three animals in one, you got to deal with a fire breather like a dragon. So uh, you can't quite see it very well on this image, but there's this little inscription that's been carved on the bronze. And it is the name uh, Tensivil. It's uh, Etruscan language is very hard to uh, pronounce because they didn't use the same kind of vowels as English. So forgive me. It was an offering to the sky goddess Tinia. And we know this um, because of a few inscriptions that are left on other votive offerings. So we can kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. And so this would have been given at the temple to the sky goddess and then presented as an offering for prayer, for hoping something went the person's way. 
And this was a big part of Etruscan culture were these votive offerings. And we see that also in ancient Greece and then later in ancient Rome. Another votive offering, I just wanna uh, show you another example of that is the Mars of Toddy. Now this wasn't a Mars as the God we think of it. That's the name that archeologists gave it and it's stuck. The um, God of War was actually called Marin in ancient Etruscan culture, but Mars kind of stuck because more people know it. Now this is around the same time period as the rest of the works that we've talked about, and it is also made of bronze. But the big shift I wanna talk about in this case is contrapposto. And that means Italian in, um, or excuse me, that means counterpose in Italian. So before art was very stiff. Figures stood with their knees locked straight up and down, very uh, vertical, very strong line. But starting in the Etruscan period, and then we see it later in um, ancient Rome, at least on the Italian peninsula, we do see this in ancient Greece, people kind of figured out that would not be comfortable to stand in. I mean, you're if you're at home, not driving or at work something, if you stand up and you kind of lock your knees, you can't stand like that for very long. It'll start to hurt. So artists look at how people stand naturally and they shift their weight from one hip to another where the majority of the weight is forced down through one side where the rest of the body is kind of balancing on the other. This is such a naturalistic human pose and it's a huge leap forward for artists where we start to see these figures look more and more like humans. Uh, and one fun fact about this statue is it was actually struck by lightning. So it was seen as an extra special votive offering because the God of War, Laren, liked it so much, he sent a lightning bolt down to strike it. All right, so now that we have the um, Etruscans taken care of, are there any questions about the Etruscans before I jump into ancient Rome? You feel free to um, unmute yourself if you're comfortable. I have a question about the Camara. Yes, of course. Um, you said a goat sticking out of it, but it kind of looks like the head of a hawk or something. Yeah, so this is, uh, yeah, it does kind of look like that now that you're saying it, I see that. So it's hard to see from this angle. This is the best picture I could find where you could kind of see the whole body. But uh, from the other side, which we call uh, sculpture in the round meant that you walk around the object. You're supposed to see it as a whole three-dimensional piece. It is a goat. These are its horns sticking out right here and then the face is kind of pointed off into one direction with its head tilted okay and, and why do you think does the snake have what part of the horn in its mouth it doesn't it's really close it's hard to tell again from this angle but the snake was supposed to be kind of whipping forward like the lion part was skidding to a halt and the snake tail was whipping forward so if you turn it around from the other side you can see that the horn and the snake are very close together but not quite and that was a stability element. Okay, thank you, sorry. You're, oh no, please, I love these questions. Like, you can tell I'm like totally geeking out right now because I'm so excited that someone asked a question. <laughs> um, so uh, I, uh, yeah, I, hi. Hi, I wanted to know how, how tall is the statue of the Mars uh, of Toddy? How tall is that? Great question. Um, so the Mars of Toddy is about four and a half feet tall. Um, so not quite life-size, but pretty close to it. I mean, I'm just a hair over five feet tall, so it's pretty close to life-size to me. But um, basically, you can tell from the fine detailing of his armor that by making it this big with this amount of detail, this was a very expensive piece to make. It's full of bronze, detailed, tall. So this was a rich person who donated this statue. 
Okay, thank you. You're welcome. I saw someone had raised their hand. Um, so if you're, you still have your question, feel free to unmute yourself. All right, so if there are no more questions, I will go ahead and go over to ancient Rome. So ancient Rome, it's a big topic, right? I could spend an entire lecture series just talking about ancient Rome. In fact, my whole podcast season this season was on that city during ancient times. So we're going to kick things off with the Roman kingdom. So traditionally, the Roman kingdom was founded in 753 BCE and ended in 509 BCE. In fact, Rome today still celebrates its birthday um, every April. So I actually was in the city that year, uh, one year when they were celebrating and it is quite the festivities. So we have two twins and we'll talk about the, you'll see a little image of them in the next slide, Romulus and Remus. Now, according to the myth, they were twin brothers who were the son of either Hercules or Mars, depending on what story you're reading. And a woman named Rhea Silvea. She was the daughter of the King of Abalanga, which was a neighboring tribe to where Rome was. And she was also a Vestal Virgin. So it was a big deal that she was uh, got pregnant by a god. Well, there was a prophecy about her and why her father made her a Vestal Virgin was that any child of hers that was born and lived would overthrow their grandfather for the throne. So he had the babies taken away and thrown to a river so that the prophecy wouldn't come true. Well, then a she-wolf came, found these little boys, and she suckled them until a farmer came along um, and raised them as his own sons. When they were adults, they kind of put the pieces together and figured out, oh, we're actually princes, and uh, we kind of we got thrown away, so we're going to go fight. So they fought their grandfather, restored their uncle to the throne of Abalonga. And they then decided that their work in Abalongo was done and they were going to found a new city. So Romulus and Remus kind of had a fight over this and it didn't end well, spoiler alert. They, uh, Romulus wanted it on the Palatine Hill while Remus wanted to found his city on the Aventine Hill. And you may recall Rome is known as the city of seven hills. It's very much like Seattle. If you've ever been here, there are hills everywhere. You gotta get your walking shoes on if you're on a tour. And so they thought, okay, we're going to let the gods decide, you know, who's right, which brother is going to build the city. So they participated in a contest of augury. And this is reading signs of the birds. They believed that the gods would speak through the number of birds that were flying in the sky at a specific moment. Remus put his question out to the gods, to the universe, and he saw six ravens fly. Romulus then stepped up and put his question out to the gods. You know, should I build on the Palatine Hill? And he said he saw 12, but Remus wasn't really seeing 12 birds. He thought his brother was lying. So um, he insulted his brother and a big fight ensued. And Romulus was, uh, ended up murdering his brother Remus. And that is why we call it Rome and not Reme. Kind of a sad story, but you know, it's very famous in part of Roman culture. They still celebrate it to this day. So this is the image that I just referenced, the Capitoline wolf. So this is a statue of a wolf and she is suckling the twins, Romulus and Remus. Now there's a little bit of controversy surrounding this piece. Personally, I love it and that's why I wanted to include it because I think it's a great illustration of this foundation myth. But we do believe that this part, the wolf, 
was an original uh, Roman kingdom or Etruscan bronze, while the twins were likely added sometime in the Renaissance. But we do have some surviving evidence that not, not our, all art historians believe it, that there were some kind of twins um, at one point attached to the statue, but for some reason or another, maybe they were melted down, maybe they broke, maybe someone stole them, we don't know. They were uh, disappeared. So when it was discovered, rediscovered in the Renaissance, uh, the Pope decided that he wanted to kind of create that myth again with the piece. We can see, just like the Mars of Toddy and the Chimera of Arezzo, that this is a very detailed piece, right? We have the fur of the wolf, we can see some bones, we can see the muscles of her legs as she's kind of standing still to make sure that the infants are being fed. This just speaks to the level of detail and craftsmanship that the late Etruscans, early Romans had and the techniques that they were able to kind of come up with over the centuries on how to create art. And we will see this um, interest in creating details throughout the art of ancient Rome and even into the Middle Ages and then again in the Renaissance. Now, we're going to uh, go over to the Republic and this is the longest lasting of the, um, government types of ancient Rome. So in 509 BCE, the people of Rome were sick of the, of the kingdom. The kings were corrupt, they pillaged, they were warlike, it was bad. And so a bunch of people kind of rose up and said that they were sick of this and we are gonna try something new. Now new governments had worked before, we see that in ancient Greece. Um, and so they thought, why not? Let's give it a go, see if we can do it as well. So what we see is one of the first representative democracies in a very early sense. You know, today I'm from the United States. We have um, a republic, a democratic republic where we vote in our leaders. It was very similar in ancient Rome, um, except that not everybody could run for these positions, right? It only came from a few select powerful families and eventually people could get their way in through military service or they did some great public act, but that was rare. So we are edging towards democracy, but it was still very much more of like an oligarchy, republic, democracy kind of melting pot. One of the most famous of these representatives was a man named Lucius Junius Brutus. He died in 509 BCE, kind of right around that same time. Uh, he was one of the first councils, so one of the first high ranking representatives of this new government style. Now, please note that this bust right here uh, is the original, his shoulders and the toga uh, are a Renaissance reproduction. It broke in, back then, so they wanted to fix it. But this is the piece that actually dates from the early days of the Republic. Again, it is made of bronze. We don't see a shift to marble until a little bit later. Bronze was kind of like the gold standard of artistic material at the time. He um, is very honored in ancient Roman history, which is why they're is this incredibly detailed portrait bust of him still being honored in the Renaissance because he helped overthrow the kingdom and start the Republic. So if you look, we call this expressive portraiture, right? This isn't an idealized image of uh, Brutus. If you look here, we can see the wrinkles and the lines in his face. He's very worried. He's very stoic about what is going on in his beloved city. We can see he's kind of turning his neck slightly. So we see the muscles of his neck reflecting that. Individual hairs are brushed through. We can kind of see that they've been styled. His beard also has the individual hairs. He's very well kept, 
which indicates his high status, right? He wanted to put his best face forward for the people of Rome to show that he was a leader. Now we call this verism in ancient Rome in art. Verism meaning truth, veracity. Uh, jokingly, and uh, art historians call this the warts and all style. So this portrait bust of a man, we don't know his name, he's just a random man, we found his head. States from 60 BCE, so right before the empire came, and we see the shift into using marble. Look at all of these wrinkles. He's balding, he has no hair. He's got wrinkles all over his face, a serious expression. Remember, this would have been painted um, and actually were lifelike colors, so he would have actually had eyes. Uh, we would have had painted pupils here. We see the wrinkles in his neck. He's got a little bit of a jowl going on here. This was a deliberate choice. Instead of showing him as this eternally youthful man, he wants us to see his verism, his truth of what he looked like. He has lived a long life, a hard life, making tough decisions. Uh, no, because of the high quality of this work, we can assume he was a high-ranking member of society. Um, so he wants us to show that he has lived a long, hard, fruitful life. And the serious expression is what we call gravitas, this other word I have down here. And that just means he's just serious. He's not smiling because a good leader has to be serious. They can't be happy-go-lucky and just go where the wind takes them. They need to be grounded. They need to um, make these hard decisions for the betterment of Rome. And that's reflected in his face and he wants people to remember him that way. Finally, we're going to move into the empire. Uh, this is what we most often associate with ancient Rome, even though it is uh, not quite as long as the Republic happened. So this guy right here, Augustus, he was our first emperor in 27 BCE. And the Roman Empire lasted until it fell in 476 CE. The Augustus of Prima Porta is the, this is the blown up statue of the little image I had on the previous slide. This is what I'm calling our good empire. Now, Augustus was the grand nephew of the famous Julius Caesar. And because his uncle had no uh, legitimate biological children, he took over for him when he was assassinated on the Ides of March 44 BCE. It took a while before um, Augustus, he was known as Octavian back then, to gain um, his power, kind of solidify it, but eventually he declared he was declared emperor by the Senate, ushering in this new, more absolute power style of government. Now, Augustus um, was in his 60s or 70s when this statue was made, but he wanted people to see him as eternally youthful, more like a god, right? So gone is the verism, gone is the gravitas of the Roman Republic. Now it is, look at me, I'm large, I'm in charge, and I am eternal. So if you look at this statue and you think it's tall, it is. It's like eight or nine feet tall. So we've gone away from that smaller uh, Mars of Toddy, just below life size, to now larger than life and in your face. Now this is made of marble as well. This is, we're gonna see pretty much all marble going forward. But remember, just like I said, it would have been painted in bright colors. To our modern eyes, it would have looked a little garish, but to ancient Rome, it was a show of power and wealth. So if you look here, we have a little Cupid riding a dolphin, and that is because Augustus, the Caesar line, the Julio-Claudian line, as we come to call, was um, believed that they were descended from the goddess Venus, and these are two of her attributes. Look at all of the fine carving. Can you guys believe that this is rock? 
Like this is a hunk of rock and look at how beautiful those folds of his toga are. Now these scenes are kind of hard to see on this image, but you can zoom in on um, Wikipedia. This is where I got the image. You can zoom in pretty well on their website. They actually um, is battle scenes showing how he took over all of these colonies that were kind of just client kingdoms and brought them under the umbrella of the empire. So he's victory, he's fighting all these wars, and this is a symbol of power in ancient Rome. Now, why did I call this the good empire? Well, I called it this because Augustus ushered in what we call the Pax Romana, Roman peace in English. And although there was a lot of fighting and wars because he was trying to expand the empire, the citizens themselves were fairly at peace. He was able to secure Egypt, for example, away from Cleopatra and Mark Anthony bringing um, basically unlimited wheat into the empire to feed people. He um, brought about a lot of new laws that helped people uh, thrive. And that continued for several years until we get to Commodus. Now Commodus was, he was not a good person. That is why I'm calling this the bad empire. So this is about a hundred years, um, 150 years after Augustus. And he, Commodus is the end of the Pax Romana. He was cruel and he was a megalomaniac. He did things for his own personal pleasure, for his own personal enjoyment, and he didn't necessarily care about helping the people of Rome. Now, if you look at him, he looks quite different from Augustus, right? Augustus is a military man. He's clean shaven, his hair is close cropped. But Commodus saw himself as a new Greek, which is why we see his curly hair um, and curly beard, very long, kind of more like a philosopher who's caring more about thoughts and the pleasures of the world instead of running a country. But Commodus also associated himself with the god Hercules in uh, Greek Heracles, but the Romans adopted him. He tried to project the strength by showing himself as Hercules. He has Hercules's club right here, and he's wearing the skin of the Nemean lion over his shirtless torso. What does this tell us about ancient Rome at the time, about Roman art? Well, it shows us that Commodus was kind of full of himself. Like, we all know Hercules. He's one of the most famous Greek and Roman myths. And by associating himself with Hercules, he is saying that, look at me, I am this big hero for Rome, and what I say goes, and I'm large, and I'm in charge. But um, this, this year right here, 192, is when this statue was made. Yeah, that's the year he was assassinated. So people really didn't get down with that uh, ideology and they had him assassinated and then the civil war happened again and things just kind of went downhill from there. So we're going to switch gears kind of away from the emperors and we're going to talk about some architecture. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the Colosseum. It is the symbol of Rome. It is also known as the Flavian Amphitheater because it was built by the Flavian dynasty Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian around the first century CE, and they actually funded this from the spoils of the first Roman Jewish war where Titus, under the orders of his father, Emperor Vespasian, sacked the city of Jerusalem and took all the treasure from the treasury of the temple, and they brought it here to build for uh, a place for the Roman people. Now, this land was originally uh, personal land of the uh, imperial family, it was where Nero had built his golden house, the Domus Aria, but nobody liked Nero, just like Commodus. He was a megalomaniac and he was assassinated. So uh, Vespasian thought, let's give this land back to the people. So this is kind of where we get that idea of bread and circuses, 
right? We can feed the people, but we have to keep them entertained. We have to give them something to look forward to. So Vespasian had the Colosseum built as a giant amphitheater where gladiatorial battles staged naval battles, possibly some executions of Christians, but that's not substantiated, but definitely some gladiatorial battles where people who were on trial fought for their lives. Um, it is a magnificent space that still stands to this day. They've actually even had some concerts there. They're going to install a large plexiglass floor to make concerts possible, but then you can still see all the underbuilding of the foundation of it. Uh, it should be super exciting there. But if you look at an amphitheater, typically they are only built uh, into a hill. So you have half the amount of space that is typical in ancient Greece, even in some parts of Italy. But they built this fully in the round to essentially double their space because this was the capital, this was Rome. There's a lot of people living here, even in the first century CE. And so Vespasian knew that he had to build a big enough space to impress people not only in the city, but visitors coming from around the empire. Again, with that bread and circuses, keep the people happy mentality. And you can't have a great civilization without access to water. Now, this is the Pont de Gard. It's in France, which was Gaul in Roman times and part of the empire. And it's an aqueduct um, that still is a popular tourist attraction these to this day. And basically what Roman architects figured out is that if you found a hill and there was access to water, gravity could be your best friends. Now they didn't necessarily know what gravity was back then, but they knew that everything kind of came down towards the bottom from the top. So they would gradually um, build this, they'd take it at the top of the incline and then they'd gradually go down on the decline to bring fresh water from the mountains, from lakes, from streams, uh, from wherever they could find it so that the cities would have access to drinking, cleaning, cooking, bathing water, all of that stuff that is essential for a civilization. And in fact, that's still being used today. Um, in Rome, if you walk around, there's tons of public fountains, not only like the beautiful ones like the Trevi fountain, but public drinking fountains and the water is clean and it's crisp, it's delicious water. Um, and that is still being fed from Roman aqueducts. Like they really built this stuff to last to the ages to help keep civilization running. Without water, you cannot have life. And they understood this and wanted to make a way to bring that to the people. And finally, final part of ancient Rome is going to be about Pompeii. So um, we all know the story uh, in August, allegedly there is some archeological evidence that it actually happened in the fall. 79 CE, Mount Vesuvius blew. And this wasn't a little eruption. It had, it kind of gurgled every now and then. There were some earthquakes. It's an active volcano. And the people of Pompeii and nearby Herculaneum, they knew this. But this day, it exploded with the force of, I'm not sure how many, but I'm sure a lot of atomic bombs. And it was terrifying. Imagine you're just sitting at home in your first century CE house and all of a sudden, ash, hot mud, lava starts flowing down this mountain. And when I was there about 10 years ago, I pictured Mount Vesuvius to kind of be like Mount Rainier here in Seattle. It was a beautiful view. You could see it. It was lovely on a sunny day, but it was far away. You know, it's about 50 miles south of Seattle. No, Mount Vesuvius is right on Pompeii's backyard. And that's because there is a lot of fertile soil from previous volcanic eruptions, right? Volcanic eruptions have a lot of minerals in them. 
meaning that once the dust and the ash have settled, it's a great place to grow crops. In addition, it had access to the Bay of Naples, and so they could have trade, and it was just a beautiful area, so the wealthy wanted to build their vacation homes in Pompeii and Herculaneum. It is right there in the backyard, and so it didn't take long for everything to be covered. We actually have a firsthand account of it, and it's just tragic to read even centuries later of these people fighting for their lives to survive. I highly recommend a visit there if you are ever able to uh, be in the Naples area. It's about a four hour train ride south of Rome. I went uh, for a day trip and it was quite enlightening, but it was not lost. And that's something that we need to remember is people talk about the lost city of Pompeii. It was not. Rescue missions were mounted by uh, Emperor Titus, the son of the guy who built the Colosseum. Um, but it, they're, with their limited tools and rescue abilities, they just couldn't really save anybody. Eventually, because it was total devastation, it was built over. People knew that it was there somewhere and they had remembered it, but nobody was looking for it necessarily. That was until the 18th century, just a few hundred years ago. And a landlord was working on doing some plumbing in the foundation of his house to fix it for his tenants. And he hit an ancient Roman wall. And so he kept digging and then he found a house and he was like, oh my gosh, I think I found Pompeii. And archeologists and, you know, unfortunately some treasure hunters who wanted to make themselves rich. The King of Italy came down and they started uncovering it piece by piece over the last few centuries. There are still archaeological digs happening today. I have a good friend, Dr. Lieberman, who is uh, one of the head directors of an archaeological project in Pompeii to this day. She spends about every other summer there doing digs on the industrial quarters of the city. We are still learning so much every day about ancient Roman life. It is tragic that all these people died and lost their lives, and I do not want to minimize that whatsoever. But it is fascinating to know that we kind of have this time capsule that has allowed us to learn so much about first century Rome. And one of these amazing things is the architecture. We can kind of see how the houses were built. This is just a regular old street in Pompeii that has been uncovered. So you can see that the sidewalk and the streets are of different levels. Um, so that you would have to step down and there would be houses and shops. Uh, villas up on the hill for the more wealthy citizens, and it is just like stepping back in time. But what I love is that the hot ash kind of created a seal, meaning that these paintings are as vibrant as the day that they were buried. These are a couple paintings. This is Venus and Mars, and this is Victory, that have been preserved uh, in the ash in different temples, and they are beautiful. There are some more um, racy paintings that are famous from the city, if you are over 18, you can check them out, but uh, there's just a lot of fun stuff that's been uncovered, statues and paintings, and we understand now a lot more about ancient Rome because of this amazing site. Now, before I jump into the medieval section, kind of that last part of the lecture, are there any questions on ancient Rome that I can answer for you? I have a couple. Um, of course the the marble statues are really cool yeah of the emperors and i'm wondering are there any slides available where an art historian has replicated the color that would have been on them originally 
Um, I don't have them in the slide deck in particular, but the Met Museum in New York City actually has a whole event going on right now um, uh, called Chroma, where artists, uh, this German artist, forgive me, I don't remember his name, took basically 3D copies of these marble statues, made them in synthetic marble, and then painted them. They used, uh, thank goodness for science, let me tell you, they used a scanning electron microscope, which basically shoots the art with electrons, and they bounce back at different rates depending on the colors and the materials that the paint was made of. And so using that data from the scanning electron microscope, he created, recreated ancient pigments to paint these sculptures. Um, okay. So I did create the website. I sent out a link to everybody for this lecture. And I okay. will go ahead and add that Chroma link to their online show so okay. that you can take a look. I got, I'm so excited. I got to see it this summer uh, when I went to New York. And it was mind boggling. Like to me, they kind of look ugly. I'm not going to lie. The colors are very <laughs> bright and garish. But I had to try and put myself in the mentality of an ancient Roman. And this was how their art looks. We've just we're so used to it being whitewashed um, yeah. because paint doesn't last like stone. Um, yeah. That's a great question, and I will make a note to put that up there for you. Thank you so much. And the other quick question is, are any of these works signed, the the sculptures or the paintings? Do we know who did any of them? Um, that is an excellent question, and unfortunately, we don't. So art wasn't necessarily art as we think of it today. Back then, we did not have the concept of art for art's sake. So really it was more of a craft. It was like a, a workshop mentality where this was just your job. You weren't an artist, you weren't expressing yourself. You were just turning out the pieces uh, on commission. And so right now we don't have any um, art signed necessarily. We have a few people from ancient Greece um, that did become famous enough that we know which their, what their works are. But in ancient Rome, it really wasn't a thing. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions? All right, and if you think of anything, we'll have some time at the end, it looks like, so no pressure. Um, so we're gonna go to the medieval period now. And uh, pardon me in advance if I geek out, early Christianity is my jam. That is where I did most of my study. I find it super fascinating. So I'm gonna have a little moment of getting to talk to people about it. So uh, this is uh, the period right around 100 to about 400 CE. Now, Rome is one of the first places that we see Christianity spread actually from Jerusalem, from Israel, because St. Peter and St. Paul came to Rome to help kind of convert people, right? We have St. Peter talking to the Jews. We have St. Paul talking to the Gentiles non-Jews. Uh, and so we see a lot of the development of Christianity coming from the Italian peninsula. Of course, that doesn't mean it wasn't developing in other places uh, like the Middle East, but a lot of what we know as modern Christianity actually started off in Rome. So Christianity was actually illegal in Rome until Constantine's reign in the mid fourth century CE. So Christians had to conduct their uh, rituals, their rites, everything in secret. And from what we know from ancient sources, including gospels, is that a, usually it was a wealthy patron who had a large house and that would use as a meeting space. And then they would go underground to conduct things like communion, baptism, etc. But they would also use these spaces as places to bury their dead. 
because they didn't have the same funeral rites as ancient Romans. So it wasn't plausible or possible for them to bury their dead properly in the typical Roman space. Now today we call those catacombs and the catacombs of Rome are a must see if you're in the city. There's about 40 in and around the city. Um, not all of them are accessible because they are underground, meaning that they're dangerous or they haven't been excavated to create a safe space for tourists to these days. But there are several that are actually under modern day churches that you can pay a fee and go down and see. They are very, um, they're not good if you're claustrophobic, so I will say that. But it is a very interesting experience, especially as someone whose passion is early Christian art. This is where we see um, some of the earliest depictions of biblical stories of Christ. And actually some saints and popes were buried down there before their uh, bodies were moved or we call that translated uh, to churches around the city. So this painting, it is a wall fresco is located at the catacomb of Marcellinus and Peter. This is one of the earliest catacombs that we have found. Um, this painting dates from around 300 to 350, so right around the time that Christianity was legalized. But we do know the catacomb was actually used for centuries before that. Um, it was actually the burial space for uh, the earliest popes from the second to fourth centuries until Christianity was legalized, the papacy was given, the area in and around um, the Lateran and Vatican Hill for them to move their popes into proper burial spaces. And we also see it as the burial and worship sites of many early saints. Now this is an image of Christ healing a bleeding woman. And what this can tell us about early Christian art is, look at Jesus. Jesus is a Roman. He is wearing a toga. He has no beard. He has close cropped hair. It's kind of got the uh, Augustus style going on, right? This is because we didn't have that standardized image of Jesus yet. People were painting Jesus as they thought of them, not as the church, capital C, thought of him. And this is kind of like showing Jesus as Apollo, the sun god of Roman mythology, right? This was the closest thing that people had to an image of Jesus back then was this glorious uh, male figure. And so they painted him like Apollo. But soon after Christianity was legalized, we see the more standardized what you and I would be used to of Jesus today, right? He's got the long brown hair. He's got the long beard. He still kind of has a Roman-ish style clothed on him, but um, that probably doesn't mean too much because everybody kind of wore that style of clothes back then. This is from the catacomb of Comadilla, another early catacomb where we see lots of important burials. But look, Christ has a halo now. In the previous image, he's just a man. Like, if you didn't tell me this was Jesus, someone as a Western 21st century Protestant wouldn't know this is Jesus. But this, even though it's thousands of years old, all right, he's got a beard, he's got a halo, that must be Jesus. So once Christianity became legalized, they were able to be out in the public, right? They could come together, talk about what do we think Jesus looked like? How are we going to show him, Mary, the saints, etc., in art? And we also know this is Jesus because we have the alpha and we have the omega on either side of him, the beginning and the end. And I could go on and on about that. So um, I'm not going to, maybe another lecture for another day. We're gonna shift our gears and we're gonna go over to Byzantine Ravenna. Now this isn't too long after the legalization of Christianity. This is around the fifth, sixth and seventh century CE. But what happened was in 476, I mentioned this earlier, 
the city of Rome fell to a Germanic Gothic tribe led by a man named Odysseus. So he kind of installed himself as the king of Italy. Roman Empire of the West was no more. But what some people forget is that Constantine actually moved the capital around. So he went from Rome in Italy to Constantinople in Turkey. And today we call that Istanbul. But at the time, he had named it after himself. And so that we call the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire. And that was around until 1453 right? Only a few centuries ago when the Ottoman Turks finally conquered the city and that is why Istanbul is now a Muslim city. But part of that time in between there was a little bit of trouble in Constantinople. The city, a capital actually moved to a city called Ravenna. Now Ravenna today is a small sleepy town about 50 miles east of Bologna, but it is well worth a visit because some of the most spectacular Early-ish Christian Byzantine churches are in that city, including San Vitale. This is my favorite Byzantine church of all time. You walk in and it is like walking into a piece of fine jewelry or some kind of music box. Everywhere is golden and the candlelight and the sunlight reflect kind of shining off of all of the different colors. And if that's because every square inch of this church is covered in mosaics. Now, in case you aren't familiar, mosaics are a medium of art where the image is created with small glass tiles that are backed by different colors. Um, sometimes it's additional glass, sometimes it's semi-precious material. But whatever they use, they wanted it to twinkle. They wanted it to catch that light to not only magnify the majesty, but to create a kind of sense of three-dimensionality. And so we have here the uh, mosaics of Justinian and Theodora. Now they were the emperor and empress of Byzantium or the Eastern Roman Empire in the sixth century CE. We see this was dedicated in 547 and they were like the power couple of the date, right? They were large and in charge. We see Justinian here with his church attendants and then his army. He is holding one of the bowls where you would put the communion wine in and he has given himself a halo saying, I am Justinian, I'm the leader of not only this church, but the entire Eastern Roman Empire. And here we have his wife, Theodora. She was a, um, not a woman of good repute, but he fell in love with her and made her his empress, much to people's upset. They did not like this at all. But here she is also carrying an element of a sacrament, dressed in the purple of the empire with her attendants and then the church behind her and in front of her as they go into the sacred space to perform the rituals. Now, the rest of the church is covered in images of the four evangelists of Old Testament scenes like Moses and the burning brush. We see Abraham, we see Cain and Abel. I didn't have enough space in this slide to put all of the images, but it is a truly spectacular space. Wikipedia has some great images um, of the church interior that I highly recommend checking out because Think of the labor it would have taken to make these images with tiny, tiny, like one centimeter by one centimeter in some places, uh, little tesserae, glass tiles. And to wrap things up, we are moving into the Trecento, that was not what I was trying to say, into the Trecento period. This is um, a Italian abbreviation for um, the 14th century, 1300s. Uh, it's the common name for this period in history because the medieval period was not the Dark Ages. Contrary to popular belief, 
it was just different. It is not what we are used to seeing with the naturalism, the ancient Rome, and then the naturalism we see later in the Renaissance period. It was kind of weird. It was kind of funky. It was different. And that's why people called it the dark ages because it's not what they're used to. But I am a very proud medievalist and I will say it was not dark. It was just different. So the first artist I wanna highlight is Duccio. He is the father of Sienese Gothic style. This is his Maesta. So the Maesta means majesty and it was a giant altarpiece made for the, um, the cathedral or the Duomo of Siena. Today it's in the, the museum attached to the church minus some panels that uh, Napoleon stole and then sold as he tended to do. But the Maesta was meant to glorify not only the Virgin Mary, which we see in this panel, but also the story of Christ, his ministries, his passion, and his death. And why is Duccio so important? Well, you might not know his name. He's not as popular as, say, Leonardo or Michelangelo, but he created a new style that was equally important in my eyes. So you can see we kind of have that heavy Byzantine style we saw in the last slide, where we've got the golden halo, the dark, rich colors. But look, we can kind of see their bodies underneath, right? There's a knee, we see Christ, we see Mary's elbow right here. We see this architectural throne creating a sense of three-dimensionality. There's a sense of naturalism that hadn't been seen in a few centuries in Duccio's time. And so he is working to kind of blend those styles, right? He wants to pay homage to the mid Byzantine medieval style in which he was trained, but he has his new ideas about showing the natural world that he wants to express. We also see it here, we see the mountain in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Judas is giving Christ the uh, ill-fated kiss. We see Peter even cutting off the ear of the Roman soldier here. He's got some emotion. And this story, although very popular over the last 1300 years, hadn't been shown like this ever, where we can feel the raw emotion of this tense moment of Jesus being betrayed. And Duccio is the first really to show this. Um, and we also don't have many of his works. The Met actually has one of a Madonna and child, similar to like if you cut it off here and it was just a little square, that they paid $45 million for because it's that special. And uh, it's a gorgeous piece. I was geeking out over it when I saw it this summer. And finally, we're going to talk about Giotto and the Scrovegni Chapel in Padova. Again, a small city. It's a college town in Italy, but it holds one of the best proto-Renaissance or uh, pre-Renaissance masterpieces. Every square inch of this chapel, just like San Vitale, is covered in these paintings with this lapis lazuli blue background. It was commissioned by a banker named Enrico Scoveni, because bankers were uh, not guaranteed to go to heaven because you're not supposed to charge interest. So he built this beautiful chapel in honor of God to hopefully get him and his family in. And again, we kind of see, uh, oh, he's a little bit later than Duccio. This isn't, uh, it's about contemporary, but Giotto was learning from people like Duccio. And we see the raw emotion again, the sense of three-dimensionality and the bodies beneath the robes. Look, we've got angry Peter, we've got Jesus, we've got the disciples all worried about this betrayal. And then in the lamentation, so this is when Christ's body was taken off of the cross and mourned by his uh, women, uh, Mary Magdalene, his mother, the saints, even the angels. And you can see the raw emotion in their face. They are screaming, they are crying, aching for this man that they loved and now he's gone. And again, that sense of three-dimensionality by painting this a hill in the background and placing the figures in front of it. We see us moving towards the Renaissance here, 
but it's kind of forgotten about because people often pass over medieval as it's the dark ages everything was flat and two-dimensional but no it was just different so next week, I know some of you have signed up. I saw a lot of double registrations on um, my uh, event calendar. We are doing Renaissance and Baroque art. So I hope to see you there. I'm super excited to talk about my other love of Baroque and Renaissance. If you want to learn more, I am doing a nine week course through my employer, the Kirkland Art Center. Uh, and the link is on the web lecture website. If you're interested about learning more, you can also email me, which is on my website. If you would like to just talk about some more information or you have additional questions. Are there any final questions? We do have some time. I'm happy to take some time to answer some questions. All right, so it seems like there are no other questions. So thank you so much for attending my first ever Accessible Art History sneak preview lecture. I had so much fun talking about art and history with you all. Again, if you have questions that pop up later in your head or you wanna learn more about the class, please shoot me an email. I am always happy to talk about art and history with the world. It's my, it's my thing, it's my jam and my passion. So thank you again for attending today and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you, Annalise, this was awesome. Oh, thank you. That makes my whole day. Like, I was so nervous. You can, I was like texting with my best friends this morning how nervous I was. So thank you. That means a lot. Oh, and there is a question about how to Arrivederci. Arrivederci. And I do have a YouTube channel. Uh, it is linked in the website. And thank you. It was a very good show. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much.